see you. How many of you can read? How many of you can read? You hesitant to put your hand up? <laughs> what to say, do you? Would you like to read a verse of scripture for me? Find in your Bible, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, and verse 28. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. You can stand up. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Say it again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Good. You did very well. You can sit down. You did well. I've got something in my pocket that may interest you. I brought it all the way from England. All right? Would you like to see it? Like to see what I've got? What do you think that is? What do you think that is? Any of you know what it is? Well, I'll tell you. It's a £10 note. It's worth $18. That good? And it has a picture of our Queen, and it has a promise that's written on it. I promise to pay the per- to pay the person who brings this into the bank. I promise to pay them the amount of money when they ask for it. Isn't that wonderful? So you've got that. On the other side, you've got a lady named Jane Austen. She's a famous writer. And one of the things that she's written is that the best thing that any child or adult can do is to read. Is to read. So you need to read, don't you? Okay. So that's my £10 note. What did you read before? Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's an invitation that Jesus gives to men and women and to boys and girls that if they come to him, he will give them rest. What does that mean? It means that you can come to know Jesus and you can come to love him and you can come to go and live with him in heaven if you come to him. So that's a wonderful invitation. So there it is. Can you see it? Whoever wants it can have it. I'll repeat it. Whoever wants it can have it. (laughs) It's not going to come to you. Whoever wants it can have it. Now, listen. He got it because he heard he heard the invitation, and he believed it, and he's received it. And all of you are miserable because you've not got it, <laughs> and you wish you could have gone first. Now, the lesson is this: 
Jesus asks you to come to him. And if you come to him and believe on him, you will come to know him, you'll have a different life, and you go to be with him in heaven at the end of your life. But if you don't, you'll be lost. But the invitation comes to you, and you must, nobody else can do it for you. But if you don't, you'll be more miserable than you were before. Well, may the Lord bless you. Keep reading your Bible, keep listening, keep asking questions. It's good to see you. Enjoy your $18. <laughs> right, now let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew once again. And we're going to look at chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. And I want to read the first 12 verses. We have started a little bit late this morning, and I apologise for that, or I apologise for Pastor Muller, who was driving. Um, if, you, if it's going over time for you, and you feel that you need to leave, don't be embarrassed to do that. You know, feel free to, to go. People sometimes say to me, do you get upset when people get up and walk out? I said, no, I get upset when they come up, get up and come towards me, so that's the problem. <laughs> Right, let's read together in Matthew 5 and the first 12 verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is entitled the Sermon on the Mount, where we are told that our Lord went up onto this higher ground and obviously crowds of people have followed him. But it's quite clear that we are told there he spoke to his disciples. Seeing the multitude, he went up into the mountain, but he spoke to his disciples. You'll also notice in verse 2, if it's in your version, it says that he opened his mouth and taught them. Well, why does it tell you that? You can't even talk if you don't open your mouth. But he's speaking, giving an example to people like me and others who preach the gospel. Open your mouth, don't mutter. Make sure that you can be heard. So then he begins to give these what are called beatitudes. Now, each one has the word blessed. 
and it doesn't come clearly in the English language, but there is a stress laid on each particular beatitude. And six of the beatitudes, it is the word they. And two of the other beatitudes, it is the word theirs. And so that stress is showing us that it is not just anyone that our Lord is speaking about. It is those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and so on. Theirs, and theirs alone, is the kingdom of God. And the Beatitudes are not given in some kind of haphazard manner. There is an order about each of them. There is a logical sequence which follows one from the other, and the one after builds on the one before. And each of them leads on to the, uh, with the others in a logical succession of teaching. Now, I want to consider you with this morning the second of these Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you may wonder, why would he preach on that? And I don't know myself, but I just felt that that was impressed upon me when I knew that I was coming here, and so I've stuck with it. And there are three things that I want to focus upon as we consider that statement. First of all, there is a paradox that needs to be explained. And then there is an emotion that needs to be defined. And then there is a consolation that needs to be realized. So first of all, there is a paradox that needs to be explained. Blessed are they that mourn. It seems strange to our ears to hear the Lord say, blessed are those who mourn. We might have expected him to say, blessed are those who are carefree. Blessed are those who are prosperous. You would hardly expect him to say, blessed are those who mourn. It's the most inappropriate way of speaking to say that the sad are happy and the pathway to blessedness is through mourning. And to the ordinary man and woman in the street... That would be a terrible problem to get their head around. Blessed are those who mourn. Because the whole philosophy of this world is that true happiness and blessedness is for everything to go your way. The world tells you that pleasure, money, entertainment, success, all of these things bring happiness. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. And all the pressures in the press, in the media, in business are full of that kind of philosophy and that kind of thinking. It's a view of life that is so widespread that very, very few people would argue against it. It's a philosophy of life that brings disappointment at the last. The poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox in her poem Solitude, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. Rejoice and men will seek you. Grieve and they turn and go. They want full measure of all of your pleasure, but they do not need your woe. Be glad and your friends are many. Be sad and you lose them all. There are none to decline your nectared wine, but alone you must drink life's gall. And in the world in which we live, people are generally regarding mourners as the most unfortunate of people. We feel they must be pitied. That, uh, you know, why are they mourning? Very, very sorry for them. 
Our Lord says, blessed are those who mourn. And he went on to say in Luke chapter 6 and verse 25, woe unto you who laugh now, but you shall mourn and weep. And that woe is precisely the opposite to the word blessed that is used here in Matthew. So our Lord is turning the world's views upside down. He is showing us where true happiness is to be found and how true happiness can be realised. And he is saying that it is not found in the ways and in the philosophy of this world. Either its pleasures, its pursuits, its philosophies, its creeds. You will not find true happiness there. It is to be found here in the man or the woman who is poor in spirit. The man or the woman who mourns over their sin. The man or the woman who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Because it's only when we become aware of our sinful state and our sinful standing and we begin to see our poverty of spirit that we will begin to mourn over our sin. Now, we are living in an age when many megachurches will contradict that, and I'm glad this is not a megachurch, but, you know, the kind of philosophy where prosperity, riches, these are the things that the gospel will give you. Well, true blessing and happiness is to be found not by creating a happy, clappy atmosphere, stirring up people's emotions, using mood music and all the rest of it. That is what we call Norman Vincent Peelism. Norman Vincent Peel was the man who advocated um, prosperity, you know. Look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself just how wonderful you are. The power of positive thinking. If you think positive about yourself, that's what you will be. Well, somebody once said that Peel is appalling, but Paul is appealing. You listen to the Apostle Paul and you find the right uh, philosophy. Well, our Lord is saying here, the way into blessedness is by being humbled into the dust. So that's the paradox. There is a paradox that needs to be explained. The other two sections sections will be a little bit longer than that. Okay. So we've got to find out there is an emotion that needs to be defined. And we've got to try and discover what our Lord is meaning and what he is not meaning in this beatitude. And there are various ways of interpreting the experience of mourning. There are experiences of sorrow and heartache which are common to all people. They're legitimate sorrows, and mourning is appropriate, and mourning is right. There are occasions that come when bereavement comes, or a tragedy strikes you, times of disappointment. You may have shattered hopes, and we all need to express our sorrows, and we mourn over them, and we grieve over them deeply, and we need to do that in order to keep our feelings from festering and poisoning our whole personality. Sorrow happens. To all people, in every kind of personality, in every walk of life. You may have heard of J.P. Point Morgan, the American financier. An extremely wealthy man, but he was also a very hard man. And his biographer says that 
the strongest would quail before him. His frown would terrify people. His eyes could flash with anger. But when his first wife died after six months of their marriage, that hard, metallic man was totally distraught, constantly crying out for comfort. That happened to Joseph Stalin. I remember reading a biography of Stalin, who personally signed the death warrant for millions of people in Russia. The one thing that moved him and affected him and bewildered him more than anything else was the untimely death in the suicide of his first wife. She shot herself in mysterious circumstances and he did not know how to handle it. He couldn't cope as a result of it. Now, obviously, God is able to give us comfort, but there are times when sooner or later, tragedy strikes and it comes to most of us. And you see it again and again in the scriptures. Abraham mourned for Sarah when she died. Job mourned for his children who'd been killed. David mourned over the taunts of those who persecuted him. My tears have been my meat day and night. They say to me all the day long, where is your God? And he's mourning. Paul writes to Timothy in the times of discouragement, and he says, I remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, that I might be filled with joy. Our Lord Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Now, obviously, God is able to give comfort to those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, to those who are discouraged, to those who are defeated, and so on. He gives us his word. That word brings us comfort in the time of bereavement. 1 Thessalonians 5, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So what are these words? Paul is speaking about the blessedness of those who die in Christ. They're gathered together with the deceased loved ones. They're absent from the body. They're present with the Lord. And so he comforts them with those words. There is the comfort of the word of God for all those who mourn. But this beatitude seems to be saying something else. And you may notice the phrase which says, they shall be comforted. It's in the future tense. So it's difficult to think that our Lord is saying that those who are in deep grief over the loss of loved ones are blessed simply because, well, one day you'll be comforted and you'll get over it and so on. He's not saying that. He's saying something different. There's more than that. It's not so much the sorrow of bereavement that our Lord is speaking about, so much as the sorrow of repentance. That's what he's speaking about. This is the mourning that arises out of being poor in spirit. The realization that you are poor in spirit, that's the soil from which this mourning eventually comes, to realize that you are a sinner. And that realization can be a radical thing. It can be almost a distressing thing when you are grappling with your own sin, when you experience the disloyalty of a friend, when your children rebel against you, when the tensions in your marriage, when the tensions come into your church, when you lose your job, when, like me, you get to the onset of old age, 
and the cruelty of parents and so on. All of these things can grieve us and distress us and we can suffer many, many things and many pains through various situations in life. And it can be hard to see what is God doing. Does God care? And we can easily become discouraged and feel like giving up. So it's interesting to notice the verb that our Lord uses here for mourn. And apparently in the Greek we are told that it is the word that represents the deepest heartfelt grief. It means to grieve with a grief that so takes possession of your whole being that you can't hide it. It's the word that was used of Jacob's grief when he thought that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Jacob rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his loins, and he mourned for many days. You think of a parent mourning for a child that's been killed in an accident or killed by sinful parents. It's the same kind of word that was used of the disciples at the crucifixion. It's a word that carries the meaning of deep grief and inner agony of soul. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted. Mary Magdalene, when she went to tell them of the resurrection, she went and told them that he had been with them as they mourned and they wept. There they are, mourning and weeping. That's the kind of word. When you see the prodigal in the far country and he's reasoning with himself, he's recognizing just how much He has sinned against his father and he's filled with grief and sadness and sorrow. Looking at him, you will be able to see that he was upset. So that's what our Lord is speaking about. It's something of what he's speaking about. Yet when he is speaking here, it's something even more than that. And it's something that's somewhat different from that. And so the sweet psalmist David experienced and expressed these things in common human sorrow both legitimate and illegitimate. He mourned over being lonely. He mourned over being rejected. He mourned over being discouraged. He mourned over losing a child. He mourned inordinately over Absalom. But nothing broke the heart of David more than his own sin against God. And no anguish was as deep as the anguish that he felt when he realized that what he had done was against the Lord. Now, the world in which we live will say, pack up your troubles and your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. But that's not what our Lord is speaking about here. He says, those are truly happy and truly blessed who know what it is to mourn over their sin. And those who mourn seem to be worse off than those who are not. The way to rise, our Lord is saying, the way for you to rise spiritually into the kingdom of God is that you stoop lower and lower and lower. And so he begins with the poor in spirit. Those people who recognize their spiritual poverty realize that in and of themselves they can never be right with God. Those people who have been stripped bare by the law so that they begin to see under the law of God just how sinful they are. Thou shalt not have any any other gods before me. I'm guilty. All of those commandments go down every one. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. 
Think of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. And the difference between them illustrates poverty of spirit. The Pharisee thought that he was spiritually rich, not realizing that he was spiritually poor. He thought he was righteous, he's full of himself, full of his pride, he'd kept the law and done everything. But those self-righteous comments were the evidences of his spiritual poverty. Here alongside of him is a publican, and the publican was poor in spirit. He was conscious that he was a sinner. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to God. He needed mercy. He needed forgiveness. He recognized his spiritual poverty, and he was concerned about it. And he was doing what our Lord says here. Here is a blessed thing to do. This is what he is doing. He is mourning over his sin. Blessed are those who mourn like that. And it's only when you begin to mourn over your sin that you can know the wonderful experience of the forgiveness of those sins. And until your sin is forgiven and removed, you will never have true and lasting happiness and joy. This sorrow for sin, if you go through the Acts of the Apostles, what happens? First of all, they're preaching the Word of God. And when people listened to the Word of God, it brought a real sense of sorrow for their sin. And then the people cried out, what must we do? And that must be seen as the heart of what our Lord is saying here. That if ever a person can be converted and receive forgiveness of sins, he must know what it is to mourn over those sins. It's only when you mourn over that that you will find joy and comfort. That's how you become a Christian. But that spirit becomes an abiding principle in the life of the believer. It's an an abiding characteristic in your life if you are a Christian. It's the pattern that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, where he's not speaking about his former condition before he was converted. He is speaking about his ongoing experience after his conversion. For the good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not do, that I do. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul wrote that at the height of his ministry as an apostle. He's still wrestling with indwelling sin, And sin and righteousness are fighting a battle in his life. And he mourned over it. And he groaned inwardly. So ask yourself the question, how often have I done that in my life? Do you know what it is to groan inwardly because of your sinful nature? How often that you've knelt before God and cried out to him because of what you have done? How often have you been shocked into reality, the reality of where your sins might take you? How often has your sin been almost found out? And when you've realized the enormity of the consequences of what I have been doing, if this should become public and open, what would my family think? What would my church think? What would the world think? 
How often have you thrown yourself upon the mercy of God because of your own sinful nature? Going down on your knees, asking God to have mercy upon you. It's not a matter of you discovering your poverty of spirit and mourning because of your poverty of spirit and then just leaving things there and you say, oh God, forgive me. Poverty of spirit is something that affects our emotions, but it also affects our actions. It also affects our resolutions. If you have, perhaps in your life, you've maybe been in a position where you've, you're saving up and you've got investments, and you put all of your investments into one particular stock and you, you place it all there, and then for some reason or other, the whole thing goes. You lose them. And you've got nothing left. That will affect you emotionally. All our savings, all our pension, it's all gone. It will affect you emotionally. But it should affect you also in your actions. In other words, you won't do that again. You won't make that mistake again. It's one thing to be found out to yourself that you've been dabbling in pornography or doing something else, and then you're frightened, it gets found out, you go to God, you cry out, oh God, forgive me, I'll never do it again, and you're repenting, you're remorseful, But have you made the resolution that you'll never do that again? That's what our Lord is speaking about here. Act upon what you have come to know. The prodigal son didn't simply come to himself in the far country and say, what a terrible thing I've done. He came back to his father. There is an action that you have to engage in when you are dealing with your own sinful nature. And the tense of the verb that our Lord uses here is in the present participle, indicating a continuous action. He's speaking about those who are continually mourning before God, confessing their sins and being comforted. And the true child of God is constantly broken over his sinfulness. And the longer he lives, the more mature he becomes he then finds it harder for him to be light-hearted and to be frivolous. Because the nearer he comes to God, the more conscious he is aware of his sinfulness, his unworthiness. That is part of what our Lord is saying here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that doesn't mean that you simply go through life in your place of work, in your home, or in in your church, and you have a funeral attitude, a look on your face as if, you know, the world is coming to an end in the next minute. But it does mean that you develop a loathsomeness for sin. And I feel that we're living in a generation where there is a lack of this deep sense of sin and of mourning in the lives of many believers today. There is a cult of frivolity. Everything's just frivolous a world that's full of laughter. Nothing wrong with laughter. Lightheartedness. 
but to just be filled with laughter and frivolity in the light of all the problems. And so much of the humour today is sick humour. People make jokes about sacred things. God and Christ and the gospel and the church and morality and the name of Christ and purity and integrity are all the butt of their jokes. They're laughing at it. They're laughing at you and me because we believe it. They can joke about divorce. They can make light about brutality. They can snigger at sexual immorality and perversity. And they're rejoicing when they should be mourning. And they're laughing when they should be crying. And there is this defective view of sin. They don't really know what sin is. Now, when we see the foolishness that's going on in the name of Christ and Christianity, that should make us mourn instead of make us happy, snappy. That doesn't mean that you're a miserable person and that you've got no sense of humor. A merry heart acts like medicine, says the Bible. It's good to have a good sense of humor, but in the right place and at the right time, and not to go against the principles of the Word of God. Now, I've lost my place, but there's a paradox that needs to be explained, an emotion that needs to be defined, and then finally, and I hope much more briefly, briefly, is there is a comfort that needs to be experienced. Notice what the Lord says about such mourners. They shall be comforted. That's why he calls them blessed. Many of you will remember that wonderful messianic passage in Isaiah 61 concerning what Christ is going to do in his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such that have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, 2. On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. It's not simply the experience of mourning that blesses us. It is the comfort that comes from God. In your situations, whether they are legitimate mournings of the kind that we all share, the people in the world share, or whether it is the mourning of your own sin, the more you discover the wickedness of your own heart, that you could think that, that you could do that, and then you, you, you repent of it. And God says you will experience his mourning. In John chapter 14, our Lord speaks about himself as being a comforter. And 
And then he speaks about the Holy Spirit being another comforter. And these are promises that are being given to those men he was speaking to who were mourning. That in the midst of your adversity, your disappointments, your sorrow, your tragedy, you will discover something that the glory of Christ's character is a God who comforts his people. Now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, I think it is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And I want to close on this, but it's a very important point. What Paul is saying is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul discovered this, it's very, very important. The Lord addresses his Father in these terms. Father, the hour has come. After the resurrection, I go to my God and to your God. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On other occasions, the Lord Jesus found God to be his God. He found God to be his comfort. Do you see what's happening here? He is not simply the God of the Father and the Spirit as he was in eternity. He is saying that when he became a man, as a man, he discovered that God was his Father. Not in the way that you and I discovered it, because he is different from us, but he proved that wonderful truth that God is a God of comfort. He proved it in his humanity. He is the God of comfort, not just in eternity or from eternity, in the, in the eternity that he, he was in. He's come into this world, and as a man, he is now experiencing what he is preaching about God being a God of all comfort. So who knows better than Christ what it is to receive the comfort from God concerning his own sin? And it is this Christ who is saying to you and to me, blessed are you when you realize just how poor you are in spirit and when you realize just how sinful you are and when you begin to mourn over your sin, you will be comforted and you will go on and you will finish and you will have a wonderful life. Blessed are those who mourn. I hope that you go away and think about some of these things. I've not been able to preach it as well as I would have liked, but um, I want you to go away and think about that. Do I mourn in the way that Christ is speaking about here? Not just having sympathy, but recognizing that my sin is against a holy God. And may we all know what it is to have that comfort in our lives, throughout our lives. Well, let me bow together with you in prayer. O oh Lord our God and our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come to you in the feebleness of our own being and we are very conscious of 
how much we need you even to come to understand your word and we do thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who is able to open up that word and apply it to our hearts and minds and consciences and oh God we do confess before you that so often we do not mourn in the way that our Lord is teaching us that we have not reached that point of poverty of spirit that pleases you and Lord we do thank you you are not a God who simply crushes us, but you are the God who comes to us and comforts us and saves us. For any here who are still outside of Christ, give them no rest, give them no peace until they find that rest and peace in him. Forgive our sins. Be with us throughout this day in our going out and our coming in. Be with all whom we love, whatever they may be. Watch over them and take care of them. We trust you to do all of these things for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. <laughs>